0: Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear, two Marmot alums, Laura Mira, VP of Technical Product Development, and Randy Verniers, VP of International Sales, talk about the early days of the company, the transition from domestic to international production, and the evolution of brands that go through multiple acquisitions. This is Chase, and joining me today, I have two guests, uh, Laura Mira and Randy Verniers, both the VP of Technical Product Development and the VP of International Sales, um, with me today from Marmot. Um, or formerly of Mar- Marmot, I guess I should say. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> th- thank you for taking time to share your stories and, and talk a little bit about your, your time with the company. Sure. Yeah. And I should say, thank you for your contributions to the Outdoor Recreation Archive. Um, I know you've, you've been, uh, Laura, you've been a big supporter of us, or at least, and I'm sure Randy has been too, uh, but you and I have been talking a lot about um, this archival right. effort that we've had going and, and appreciate your, your support of, of this initiative and, and sending some of your materials from your days at Marmot to us to be preserved and appreciated. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, I guess to start, uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground today in a short amount of time, but I I think it's always helpful to understand, you know, where your initial connection to the outdoors came from, not even the outdoor industry, but did, did either of you have a real connection to, to outdoor activities before you got into the industry itself?
1: I think you should start Randy.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Okay. Well, uh, goes back to early seventies, um, My first experience was, I I grew up in Chicago, and a friend of a friend moved to California to Berkeley, so we decided to take a road trip. So, I borrowed my friend's Boy Scout knapsack and packed up our Volkswagen minibus and went out to California. Um, So, I was trying We decided we were going to go on a little camping trip, but no tents, no water bottles, uh, one Backpack, two yeah. backpacks. Um, and we bought a couple cantaloupes, some big cans of soup, and we took off on the trail to Hetch Hetchy uh, in Yosemite. And it was insane. It was switchbacks forever getting up higher. Uh, we ran out of water. Never tasted cantaloupe so good in my life because we were dying of thirst. Finally, got up to a little place where there was a spring and a couple uh, of the uh, trail crew were camped. Eventually, made it over to the river and uh, set up a camp um, next to the river on the granite and had a great time uh, until the bear at night came and ripped open our cans of Vienna wieners, (laughs) ate most of our food. Uh, and then we had to come back down, but, uh, that's where it all started for me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You'd never guess he ended up being a climber. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Uh, Well, for me, it wasn't, uh, that kind of camping. Um, I grew up in a very large family, oldest of six kids. And, uh, the cheapest thing a family could do was to go out in the wilderness. So we would camp almost every weekend. And uh, my stepdad was a hunter safety instructor. So, you know, we were either fishing, hunting, uh, target practicing. Um, camping, of course, then wasn't like it is today. Didn't have a lot of fancy stuff. You had to cook everything up front. My mom would spend days cooking up uh, a bunch of things, put in jars, and then we'd take it with us. And uh, yeah, every weekend we went camping.
2: That's great. You guys probably had a tent. Huh? <laughs>
1: And, and a, and a yeah. shelf. <laughs>
0: that's great. Um, that's that's a great introduction to to the activities. Um, when when did you recognize that people made products? And, you know, when, when did you feel like, oh, well, that's something that I want to do. I've shared this story in previous episodes before, but for one of our students in our design program, they went on a long distance, you know, through hike and they were just staring at the backpack in front of them for hours on end. And, and through that experience, they started to notice the details and they thought Mm -hmm. about oh, wow, someone actually put time and attention into making this thing. People make these things. And that led her into a career in the outdoor industry, which you know, she's a part of today. But did, did either of you have a similar experience where you uh, felt felt this drive to create product or recognize there was actually an actual industry behind the products that are made or the activities that we participate in?
2: Well, well
1: you want to go first?
2: No, you go first this time.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, I was just gonna go to work for the summer to earn enough money to buy a washer and dryer. And then I stayed 33 years. Um, So I could always sew. And uh, I thought, well, if I could get a little payment for it, that'd be great. So I went and it was fascinating Uh, in those days. One person made one product from beginning to end, whether it was a tent, a sleeping bag, a garment. So uh, that was very interesting to me. And I liked it. I liked the detail of it. I liked the uh, attention to quality of it. So I stayed.
0: How did you first hear about the position? What and what was it? Just a production sewer just position a, that you just saw? Just a
1: seamstress, yes.
0: Okay. Yes. Where just uh, where did you see the job description? Um, the job it was there. in
1: the newspaper mm-hmm. Grand in Grand Junction, Colorado. That's where the Marmot factory was. So there was an actual mm-hmm. Marmot factory, um, and uh, I started work there. It was uh, incredible. You know, a lot of people. There were actually four locations because one building you know the Quonset huts they used to have back in the day well uh there were a couple of those and uh they had part of the sewers in one building they had cutting in another building they had the back office in another building so it was all spread around town and uh eventually they brought all the buildings together made a very huge facility um but uh yeah, from there, I, I learned how to do certain operations. It took one month just to learn how to sew a jacket. And all you did was sit and somebody taught you and then you sewed one and you kept sewing one, uh, until you got no quality issues on it. So, um, yeah, I, I like that part.
0: That's great. Randy, what about you?
2: Around 74 or so, I was uh, delivering photographs for the high school photography place, and I used to drive by the uh, store in Chicago called Airwatch. And by that time, I had done some more traveling in my Volkswagen bus and um, was joined American Youth Hostels. And one day I decided, basically, I think I'll go see if they have any job openings. And I got a part-time job and uh the rest as they say is sort of history a couple years later in 75 um i met eric reynolds from marmot who had done his first he was on his first uh, sales trip around the country um and actually it's from that day that i met him and he told us about marmot the stuff that they do and why they do it um and that intention Um, I had become basically a lifelong Marmot. And within five years, 1980, um, I was traveling again in Berkeley, stopped by the Marmot store there, uh, asked them if they had any job openings. And I moved from Chicago out to the Berkeley store in California. and was there for 10 years. Um, Then... Uh, the company was going through a transition. Eric was leaving, and um, we had talked over the years about product and you know all that sort of thing. And uh, as he was leaving, I was kind of anointed the uh, heir to product development and design. So, <laughs> 1980, <laughs> I moved to Colorado uh, and took over product development and design for Marvis.
0: What was your product development and design experience up up to that point?
2: Absolutely nothing. (laughs) That's the way we
1: used to do it.
2: (laughs) Other than, you know, using the equipment because being in in Berkeley, access to the Sierras and stuff and always went out and skiing and everything. Um, And then um, talking with Eric, went to a couple sales meetings, you know, um, got a sense of... uh, how they do some of those things and um, my time at retail talking to all the different sales reps going to the trade shows talking to the designers etc i just gained a, a, a ton of knowledge about product how it works why it does what it does and um i was pretty diligent kind of guy so i think they
0: liked it i'm anal. curious
1: they call it anal <laughs>
0: you can edit that (laughs) i'm curious you mentioned um well becoming a lifelong marmot from that day forward um what what was it about i guess where you know eric did had a great sales pitch it sounds like um and what, what 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 was it about that pitch like you know when he was talking about the company was it the values was it was was there one thing in particular that really stuck out to you that that pulled you in and and kept you there for you know a, a couple decades few decades
2: yeah probably what um to start with it it wasn't like a sales pitch it mm-hmm. was um i think what you said these are our values these are uh why we do some of the things you do and these are the things that we are doing. Like uh, they, We were the first to use um, higher fill power down. At that point, almost everything was 550 fill. Uh, Marmot was at 600, 625, uh, moved all the way up to 650 and 700 over the years. Um, and uh, Eric and the guys who uh, started Marmot, listen, were all outdoor people. They actually met in Santa Cruz in college uh, during a a glacial um, um, expedition, if you will, up to Canada with one of their teachers. And uh, that's where the the name Marmot came from. This teacher had a thing called uh, the Marmots. It was a club. And to become a Marmot, you had to climb a, uh, oh, I think it was, A 10,000-foot peak or some sort of uh, uncertain height peak with another marmot to become a marmot. And uh, they had uh, all been together at Santa Cruz, and they decided to – well, one of the guys, Dave Huntley, actually made sleeping bags in his dorm room at that time before marmot even started. Um, And then in 70 – it was 74 they moved to Colorado
0: to, uh, start the company. That's great. That's great. Um, what, you know, I'm going to fast forward a, a little bit, but maybe, maybe you can fill in the gaps here. Um, Laura, you, uh, how important was it for you to start in production? Um, and on your trajectory to, to leading the design team, um, I mean, it seems like that's, that's a story I'm familiar with, right. People starting, you know, I've heard stories of, of people at the <laughs> North face, like sweeping the floors. Right. And then eventually getting oh, yeah. designed, yeah. Right? yeah. How important yeah. was it for you to be in that, you know, in that position and wh- where did that, you know, how did that help lead you to where you eventually landed?
1: Well, I think for both Randy and I, it was kind of the same thing because Marmot when it was young, I mean, you wore a lot of different hats and, um, you know, trying to keep a production facility going in the States was getting really, really difficult. And uh, I was learning more and more. Um, And then Randy, by the time Randy came, it it was pretty close to the end of factory business. So they decided to shut down the factory and move the operations. And uh, we had just barely gotten into starting our assembly line. Um, in the new facility, but unfortunately we couldn't find enough sewers. We trained sewers all year long, but the the base for people to come in, I mean, you would get women who were basically almost retired, who had never had a job and you'd train them for four or five months. And still you'd only get like 60% efficiency. So that's not a very good combination um, to run a facility with the kind of needs we had. So, you know, just learning all those things, uh, being in all those different aspects of uh, quality and uh, so many teachers around, you know, who had really good experience from uh, real facilities of sewing, a lot of them back from back east. Uh, my teacher was is probably my best friend. Uh, she trained me and uh, she still lives in Grand Junction and she runs a small facility of her own. Uh, dolores dean she was actually marmot's first seamstress Hmm. so uh uh she knew all the founders you know very well uh but all of their like randy was saying eric didn't have a pitch you know i think it was his passion his passion was what i think really struck with you and and the passion for product and doing it well and making the best and it you know he he they all were very passionate people. Um, and that I think paid forward to all the people that, that, uh, kept going with Marmot. So, um, you know, that was something that I really loved was the attention to detail. That's, that's the way I do most things. And so does Randy. So, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it, it was a good combination. Well, sometimes not a good combination when we disagree, but uh, yeah, it, that, that was, that was the start of our life at Marmot.
0: Right. Well, and that's where you both met was in that factory then when Randy yes. came over. Okay.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, Actually, I, 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 was... I did not like him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Cause I was up in heaven.
1: Yeah. Cause there was a two story building and he was in the mm. design area upstairs and we were on the lowly production floor. And you know we, it's it's always been this way and always will be. You know, design and production butt heads. Um, We're all about efficiency and making it right. And design has got there. You know, really for your ideas. Um, but um, and it started way back when he was at the Marmot retail because we got a bunch of garments oh. back and I was wondering why. <laughs> so I went down to the warranty area and they showed me all these. Garments with the storm skirts pulled off, and I'm going, what the heck? And uh, apparently, Randy from Marmot sent them all back because the uh, the back tacks were failing.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> you didn't have to pull them.
0: <laughs> There's I that. Te- early, I was testing them. That's the that early QA, you know, Q QC experience, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I'm curious. I mean both of you saw a lot of major changes hit the industry. And Laura, you talked a lot about um sewing being a skill set that um was harder and harder to find. I think it's interesting because oh, yeah. like, maybe even like a decade before that, you have companies like Frostline Kits, and maybe you've sewn some frostline right. kits. I yourself. I did. <laughs> um But maybe a decade before in Colorado, Frostline kits was, was booming, right? Oh yeah. Um, It was,
1: you saw them everywhere.
0: Right. And, and so it was, I mean, at that point now it seems very foreign, this idea that, oh, I'd, buy a whole business would be built off of buying a technical garment that I sew at home. Right. There's a little bit of a resurgence of that, right. The DIY community yes, people are yes. more, yeah. you know, open to doing that now, but I mean, that was a whole business built on sending people, um, you know, technical garments that they could sew at home and stuff the down chambers themselves yep. and, <laughs> and all of that. So I guess it, what, what thoughts do you have on, just those changes that you saw over, over the years, working at Marmot, the, the changes that, you know, moving things overseas, changes in production, any thoughts there?
1: That was uh, difficult. Marmot was one of the uh, last heritage brands to move. I mean, you know, we, we were holding on for dear life and it almost killed the company. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it was, I remember it was a spring sales meeting and we had just sewn all of the sale samples and we had this big fashion show. And uh, in a lot of the uh, historical uh, press clippings that I sent you, there's a part there where I think I wrote notes. Um, this was the time when Eric gathered us together at the, it was on a Friday and he says, as soon as you get your checks today, go and cash them because we don't know if we're going to open up on Monday. And uh, things were that bad, and uh, we, he said, "If if you come to work next week, we don't know if we can pay you next Friday." On Monday, every single person showed up. Everybody showed up, and you know they pulled it out of the hat. They found some money to keep going, uh, but not long after that is when you know the first transition happened. Um, but everybody believed. Right. And, you know, after that, I mean, going overseas, that was, uh, I think what I wrote was a trial by fire. It was, it was very, (laughs) I was 37 years old. I'd never been on a plane before. And I started flying to San Francisco and then, uh, Utah and Costa Rica. Um, that was, uh, quite a intense, uh, discovery of what I could do, and I think I was just too um, inexperienced to be afraid. <laughs> uh, luckily, um, but uh, it, it was it was really really tough because there was no there was no one to train you. Mm-hmm. You just had to grab things and start doing them, and you know. And we all did. As they shut down the company, we moved to to California. We had a job but there weren't any real parameters and there couldn't be. I mean, Randy and I used to order all the buttons, the zippers measure for fabric and we'd count everything, put it on, get it put on a, uh, um, you know, on a ship and send it overseas. I mean, we didn't, we didn't really, nobody trained us to do this. So it was uh, we learned a lot. And yes, we also took turns cleaning the bathrooms.
2: <laughs> I think I think that's a, a good point about um, the early days, at least from our perspective for the industry, is that um, there wasn't a lot of history or um, you know, really uh, experienced people to right. show you the ropes. Uh, when I went out to Colorado um, and uh, they put me in charge of product development design, there was me and a pattern maker. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to learn everything from the bottom up. We also had a designer who worked from out of house, but um, just you know, looking at how to create a spec package, um, how to work with a designer and the pattern maker and product development people. Uh, it was all sort of um, throw you into the mix and uh, good luck. <laughs> this and this is- was
1: before, you know, you had like email, everything was faxed. You'd get a fax in from somebody, a designer, whatever. You'd draw your X's out and draw your style lines in and you'd fax it back. <laughs> um it was it was a whole different world. I mean, people today have no idea how lucky they are. Hmm. You know, no no cell phones. It was a, a different world.
2: Right. Well, yeah, traveling can... in China was uh, very uh, <laughs> difficult in the early days.
0: <laughs> I, I went there a, a few years ago, and and even I felt. Like, how do I navigate my, my way around? I, I landed and someone was going to pick me up, which is already a luxury, but I landed and realized my phone doesn't work over here. <laughs> um, what would happen if my, this person I'm supposed to meet didn't pick me up. Right. Oh,
1: you have no you know? idea. And so I imagine stories? that's what you
0: went through, right? That's and, oh my God. Know, and the first some.
1: time I went, that was before highways. You're, mm-hmm. you're lucky there's highways there, right? There were none when I first started traveling. And my first trip from Hong Kong to the factory was in Canton, which today you could get there very easily. Then it took all day to get there. And it was a two lane road.
2: Hey, you're making us sound really old.
1: With no <laughs> bathrooms. And I was a woman. And then they, you know, I get to the factory and my agent hadn't arrived yet. So nobody spoke English. So they put me in a guest room and that's where I stayed until he came that night. So it was, it, it, it's yeah. The, mm-hmm. And that was that way for a long time. Let me tell you, it didn't matter what kind of hotel you went to. You, you usually could not find a place to communicate with your business. So there would be times, you know, you're there and you're there for three weeks or so and communication was horrible. And then when you get back home, you get yelled at the telephone bill. You called twice in three weeks and your bill was more than the hotel.
0: Wow. That's way that is really a whole, whole nother world. Um, yeah. Wow.
1: really good at it though.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you had to, right? There's really no other, no no other choice. choice. You, you no had other to choice. get it done, right? No.
1: And back then it's like women didn't do business in Asia. That's a very male dominated society at that point. And uh, I think my respect came from when I could sit down and it was more with just pointing at things and then, you know, come here, go to the sewing room and there, you know, people are looking at me like, why would I want to go to the sewing room? And I'd sit down and I'd sew something. I go, this is the way. And it's like they say in Asia, you know, it's that, that face thing, building face having face to another person that's a huge deal huge deal if you can get respect you got it nailed
0: well talk about getting an education right you both oh, yeah. had a crash course in in uh, supply chain management design International business all in in a relatively short amount of time. It's really incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, I it's funny that just I I had this similar conversation. And I feel like I keep having this conversation, especially around companies that were around during this this big transition period. Right. I just um, interviewed the Hine brothers who started Hine Snowbridge mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in uh, Boulder. Um, and we talked about how the transition from manufacturing in in, uh, Colorado to overseas is ultimately yeah. what did them in. And, um, and they just got priced out at the end of the day and, um, you know, m- moved their business overseas, but at that point they were already behind and, and, uh, you know, yeah. just the, the pricing just didn't make sense for them anymore. So, uh, it's, it's been really interesting for me to talk to companies around this era that, you know, went through that transition period and and how they adapted. Did do you feel like companies that started, you know, making the products themselves, you know, even the the, the point of some of the founders being involved, being behind a sewing machine, um, do you feel like the comp like how do you feel like companies change when they go through this experience of no longer being, you know, hands on the sewing machine? making the product you, do you feel like there's a distance that's created or a separation mm-hmm. that exists or the values of the company change in your experience you know what was what's that been like being removed from the product
1: i mean for myself just watching the way things happened as we kept transitioning and getting bought and getting bought and getting bought i think the big thing for me is it all became more about the shareholder Of these corporations instead of product because if you are bought by corporations that have 50 other companies with you know 12 other different kinds of products from you know uh, air purifiers to sharpie pins how is anybody going to focus on you when your whole breath is all about making amazing product in the outdoor industry in that industry, there's no way you're gonna get the same margins as a sharpie pen. And when it comes down to corporations, though, you know, it's 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 hard for what we would always call the bean counters to, you know, look, like they, they need to look at this a different way. It it's not gonna happen. Mm-hmm. You know, if 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 somebody and, and that's basically what to me was the demise of a lot of really good brands. You know you're you're making it, but I mean even Marmot, it was not anywhere near the size of North Face, but that's who we always had to wrestle with.
2: Yeah. But another. Go ahead. Sorry. Another thing to the um, to the point of uh, how is it if one is able to sit down and sew uh, with the people at the factories um, or people that don't have that experience, it was crucial in the early days because in the early days, the factories had no experience with our types of products. It was our, well, Laura's job anyway, to, uh, to basically teach them um, how to tape a Gore-Tex jacket properly yeah. um, and all those different things. Today, the factories, if you find a good factory, they have the experience Designers can go there with sketches and um, get a certain amount of expertise from the factory themselves to build the product. Uh, that's a big difference between um, when we first started and today, I believe.
1: Yes, de- definitely. Because I, I used to actually hold classes because they had, you know, they would be probably five or six different brands, similar outdoor products. But, you know, they would try to explain to me, well, we do it this way for this brand and it's easier. I'm like, it's not quality because it's going to, you know, your stress point or stress points or bar text. It's like such a tiny little thing. But if they weren't done properly, it's like your returns would be horrible. So it was hard to get a factory to understand that even though these things all look the same with all these different brands, you need to pay attention to how each brand wants their stuff sewn. That's critical, and it, it worked for us because our return rate was really, really low for our industry.
2: Right. And that that's a good point too. You could have uh, two different companies working at the same factory, but if they have different uh, levels of requirements, you can get much different product out of the same factories. Right. Right.
1: And that's one of the reasons we had our own QA team. I mean, many people would um, you know farm that out to a QA service we tried that once and we quit within a couple of weeks it there's no way there's no way so we ran our own team and they went to all the factories and and we were very that was one of the things that we had a stranglehold on was how to quality inspect a product that was ours
0: well I'm curious I've, I've got a I guess just some, some, uh, some of my own curiosity about 1990. That's when the factory sh- really shuts down and everything's right. mo- well, the factory in Colorado. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause, cause um, I, you mentioned to me that, you know, sleeping bags are sewn out of grand junction, Hong Kong, Seattle, Fr- San Francisco fleece okay. goes to Utah and a few other places Outerwear, Hong Kong. Um, I'm curious, the Utah piece, this is not something I was familiar with. Where was the, uh, Wait, did you have your fleece products? Sewn I in can't Utah even somewhere? remember
1: what the name of the place was, but, um, it's like my, my, like I said, my, my friend who trained me, she was the one that took care of that one. Mm. She set it up with them and everything. And then I was going over to San Francisco, uh, to set up the fleece over there. And, uh, I can't remember, I can't remember the name of the place, but it was like, I don't know, more centralized. I couldn't have been very far away from Salt Lake, hmm. but uh, yeah, but they, they had a, they had a fairly big place there.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll have to follow some breadcrumbs and try to track that down. Cause that's, that's Laura, interesting for me.
2: Laura, that wasn't uh, connected with Sunridge, was it?
1: It might've been, it might've been.
2: That was a company in Utah. They had a great, um, designer and developer there too
0: yeah but his name's not coming to me i know (laughs) well if you think of it let me know because i'd be very curious to to learn more about that um i you you both touched on this a little bit but the technical nature of the outdoor industry i mean you saw big changes when it came to that as well right Mm, cortex and seam sealing and no so anything else you want to share there, like big innovations that you felt like you were a, a part of or, um, involved in or, or saw, you know, changes, changes hit the industry.
2: Uh, I'll take that one. Okay. Cause I wrote notes on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, um, some of the things that I, I think I'm most proud of from, uh, from Armin, even before I got there, um, was their introduction of a number of, um, um, particularly functional things, uh uh one thing we called angel wing movement, yep. which was a special pattern in the sleeves so you could raise your arm without pulling up on the jacket and stuff, uh, together with pit sips for ventilation. Yep. Um then the like I mentioned before, the the movement into uh, getting higher and higher quality down um, which was a struggle at times because the down companies didn't really have a great market for the higher fill powers. Yeah, they were more expensive for most people. Um, we were the first to use Gore Tex on down sleeping bags. And I think one of the things that it's not a real high tech um, game changer, but it was in the rainwear category and that's our precip jacket. Yeah, um, it was the first ninety nine dollar jacket that was actually waterproof and breathable. Mm.
1: Do you remember the wars we had internally over that jacket?
2: Oh yeah, um, <laughs> our our CEO was adamant though. Goes, it's going to be ninety nine dollars. Yeah. And of course, budgeting, they're going well. There's no margin at ninety nine dollars. He goes, no, nope, it's going to be ninety nine dollars. Do you remember what he said? No,
1: we need we need to do this and cannibalize ourselves before somebody else does. And he was right. Yep, that was Steve Chrisopoli.
2: And eventually, working with the Japanese suppliers, we were. Then I did a lot of the R and D too uh, over the years. I did all R and D while I was there. Anyway, uh, (laughs) uh, we were able to work with the Japanese suppliers to get the cost down uh, as we used more and more. Of the fabric and product, um, the scale became uh, much more reasonable, and it actually became a profitable item for us. And uh, I think revolutionized the, the basic rainwear in the outdoor market.
1: Everybody copied us.
0: Kind of a, along those lines. How did you learn how to design technical and performance product? I mean, from going to just sewing something behind a machine, to using Gore-Tex and seam tape. And again, there's no playbook for how to do this. There's no playbook for how to get something made overseas. I imagine it's similar to how you figured out everything else. You just did it, right? It's
1: trial, trial and error. Back in the day, Gore would have um, classes. Randy and I went there, you know, and you get a certification because you, I mean, at that time, I think we were there a week. And uh, it was pretty intense and you'd come back, but then you'd have your own ideas. Well, okay, they, they, they do this, but what if we try this, you know? Um, I mean, the, the two layer, two, three layer combination, I, th- I think we were one of the first to, to do it with the black mm-hmm. shoulders. Yep. Um, it, and that was because, you know, Eric and his team came back from some big climb. They tore the jacket apart. And all the abrasion areas, that's where we put black. That's where we put three layer. And it was black. Yeah. And it was black because we could only buy a certain amount of fabric. So it all had to be black. 300 yards. And that's what went on all the colors of jackets. It was black.
2: (laughs) Minimum dye lots.
1: (laughs) Minimum dye lots. And so, yeah, some of it came, you know, that design. It wasn't it was designed that way because of the abrasion it wasn't designed because somebody thought black was a cool color right.
0: i love uh, those stories of the, the constraints kind of leading to the ultimate uh, or to the, the to the final design i've interviewed uh, designers from the north face and kind of a similar story right they're oh yeah. very iconic yellow blue red you know yeah. with the black um I mean, that, that was just because of the limitations of color, you know, the color available, right? So, it's, right. this is what you get. So, that's what right. we're going to make it out of.
1: Exactly. So, you know, that's, uh, you have to learn. And, and, and that's a good uh, point right there is you're always pushing the edges, but you have to have responsibility for your boundaries too. And, and what, what the consequences are if you don't follow those. And that is a hard thing to train.
2: Because, uh, go ahead. I, I think what Laura said, too, um, about the, uh, the development of the two, three-layer jacket is that passion that the people at Marmot had to make the best possible products they could. Uh, it was a men and women's expedition to Everest um, that they outfitted everyone with um, two-layer jackets and three-layer jackets, I believe. yes. All two layer, all three layer, and then when they got back, they examined all the jackets for leakage and um, any failure points. And it was the shoulders, the elbows, and actually around the um, the, weight, uh, the bottom hip, waist, hip belt, yeah, where the two layer failed and the three layer didn't. Yeah, uh, and that oh, yeah, you know, that's a good. Uh, that was a a key innovation that I forgot to write down. Is that combination of using two layer and three layer together? Because Gore had never done that before. We had to, I believe, Laura develop um, the the seam taping the parameters right. uh, with with Gore's help to seal it. Because sealing three layer is different than two layer. Then you put them side by side and try and seal two different things together. Um, yeah. Was the tape had to be developed? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It
1: was quite a. Interesting, right? And and partnership because you know um, Gore was such a longtime partner of Marmot, and you know we, I think we gleaned ideas from each other. You know they learned just as much from us as we did from them, um, and a lot of suppliers are that way. The fabric suppliers, Randy would go over and develop fabrics, and you know, and we'd have these aha moments about certain things, and then it's like, oh, well, where are we going to use this? So it was, yeah, it was, it was a definitely team effort. I think back then, again, we all had so many hats that it was critical for us to be on the same wavelength and in the same meetings. I mean, I, you know, I think I wrote to you, I learned more about men, uh, climbers, you know, outside of mountains relieving themselves. You know, I, I, I knew <laughs> lots about that, more than I ever wanted to know. Uh, and then to train that to the new product developers that were coming in and, you know, most of them were women and they go, well, what do you, and you'd have to squat and show them and blah, you know, it's like you, you have to go through the motions and, oh, okay, I get that.
2: Oh, that's another innovation.
1: Oh, the whiz zip.
2: The whiz zip. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we made uh Gore-Tex bibs and such with a zipper that ran basically from about your belly button all the way through the crotch and up the back so you could split um your your pants and not have to take your jacket off and your other layers off and the bibs off Gotcha. in order to do it and the climbing harness when you're in a harness
1: yeah that that was that was quite a um that was a very interesting engineer project yes
2: (laughs) We came up with all these great names, you know, Wiz
0: I was gonna say, who who gets the credit for the WizIp name? That's that's pretty good. Uh, I think that goes back to Eric and the guys. Yeah. Well, I'm curious on I mean, with maybe some of that, maybe there's a transition point there somewhere, but on the sales side and the marketing side, um it, where I know Randy, that's ultimately where you found yourself was in in sales. Um in and leading sales um what what were the the shifts or innovations that that you saw or changes in how product was sold over your time at marmot and in the industry in general
2: uh good question um i probably can't talk very um strongly about the sales because i never considered myself a salesperson <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I had been working overseas and the product and such, and it was uh, it was more of a time for a change at Marmot in product development, well, not so much product development, but in design uh, to bring in new people, new ideas, and such. Um, and because of my uh, long term experience with Marmot, basically they put me in charge of international sales. Um, which is great. I I got to travel around the world and such. Um, And um, probably uh, one of the challenges was uh, dealing with overseas. You'd have people that were um, purporting to be a distributor for a country and want to buy a bunch of stuff. And then you find out they're actually reselling it to Costco. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was uh, a, a problem for us because uh, uh, in those days we had a, a policy that we were not selling through Costco um, or any of the other large uh, distribution brand sort of things. Right. Um, it was our faith into retailers, um, and it was it was great in the other countries to see the development of um, their markets too. Uh, Becoming uh, a bit more sophisticated, more access to product, Um, and for me, it was just it it was great working with them.
0: Oh, that's great! I
1: think it, it also internally, as the international grew and grew, it was a juggling act internally for production because there were some things that you know you 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 forget. Oh, well, that country is in a different. Uh, climate time than we are for this particular product or, you know, and all of those things start coming into place. So it got more convoluted and complicated, uh, I think for production, uh, and the people internally, because our production numbers, the number of styles, everything, uh, was growing every year. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a juggling act for any company.
2: Was there, Chase, was there anything about sales that you were particularly interested in?
0: Um, no, no, just, just in general. I know that. Um, I mean, again, like you, you probably saw the transition from catalogs and, um, you know, mail order, yeah. um, to uh, transitioning to online being really important, um, and the dominant, you know, direct to consumer, um, I don't know j ju- just if you had any insights on that, and maybe even how that influenced how you make product right um, I don't know well I'd have
2: to say it didn't influence on um, how we made the product other than maybe some styling or color choices mm-hmm. um, but for me, that was the thing about sales um, not being a salesperson, they didn't really have to go out and try and sell it. It was the reputation of the company, the passion of the people, and the product itself that spoke um, to the distributors around the world and to the Mm -hmm. retailers in the States. Um, It it really wasn't something where you had to go and make deals and sell and hype the product and such. So um, that's one reason I was never really considered a salesperson.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. Um, I I guess with that said, um, you also saw a lot of changes in terms in terms of changes in ownership of of marmot um with marmot starting as this you know heritage and still a heritage brand but started by gear pioneers um during this golden age of the outdoor industry uh, uh, along with so many other great outdoor brands that have, have started up and are still with us today but um like many have been uh Bought and sold and passed around and and with that, um, you know, probably some good things and and also some some not so good things. I'm curious from your perspective, um, you know, what's it like to be at a heritage brand that is, is uh, that trades hands um, and what happens within a company, you know, it sounds like, I don't know how many acquisitions you listed here, but there's over five or six yeah. um, or seven that, that you were a part of, or at least at the company for. So, and any thoughts there, Laura?
1: Well, my, like, like I said before to, to me, the biggest thing is the corporations are about the shareholders. And to give shareholders their, their money or their uh, – for using their money, I guess, um, everybody has to keep tightening and tightening and tightening and tightening. And you can only do that so much until you start losing. You start losing the type of people you can hire, um, the type of money you need to go in and uh, – do real investigative, you know, design and development work. Um, You need money you're not going to get back, you know, and and that, as the years went, became less and less and less. And I think other brands would probably tell you the same thing. Um, Those brands that have held on to themselves um, uh, as not public, uh, kudos to them. Um, And some people did it right and are still there. Uh, And there are a lot of good brands that are gone. And I have to say that, uh, you know, during that time, our time at Marmot, we, we enjoyed probably the best parts of that Marmot history. uh, Saw the greatest growth, um, developed amazing product. But I, I, I do not believe the corporations that today that have so many brands can ever focus on the needs of an outdoor industry product. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a difficult product, you know, well, we've
2: we've gone through um, some different types of acquisitions too. The, the first one in 90 when Marmot was basically going bankrupt um, Steve Carciofoli, who used to work at, what was the company back east at Skiwear?
1: Oh, I can't remember the name no. of it.
2: Anyway, <laughs> he was from back east, worked uh, in a Skiwear company, put together a deal with a uh, Wall Street company. Slalom. Um, Slalom. Skiwear, Slalom, that's right. Yeah. Uh, within about a year and a half, um, Steve was good. He, he came out to more or less run the company. The... the um, Wall Street company decided to get out because, you know, they didn't see the big profits, whatever, that they were hoping. Yeah. Um, uh, so at that time, uh, was that the Odyssey? Yeah. Odyssey, Odyssey. Uh, bought Marmot. Odyssey was run by Bill Simon, who was from the Bay Area. Uh, they owned the North Face, Air Designs, Head.
1: They owned everybody.
2: A few things. Yeah. That, that was pretty much a name. I mean, they more or less left us alone. Uh, but that again only lasted about a year and a half and we did an employee purchase of the company. Yeah. Uh, and that was great. That was one of the best things. So we had a few years under our belts there uh, on our own. Um, then started the corporate uh, takeovers uh, K2, K2. Which, which owned a bunch of different brands. Um, and then they sold to Jarden who owned even more, brands and diverse like Mr. Coffee and Oster. Uh, fortunately, they pretty much left us alone uh, to, to run the company.
1: Well, they uh, had a runner at the helm. I can't remember his name now, but he was uh, he was proposed to be a, a, an avid outdoor person. So he yeah, liked this so, lot.
2: <laughs> so sometimes the transitions can be OK. Um, yeah. The Jarden, uh, more or less, was acquired or merged with Newell Brands. Uh, known owns Rubbermaid and some other things. And that's where uh, what Laura was saying happened. They, um, Including us, they let four vice presidents go within the first month of uh, buying the company. Within about six months, the CFO was gone. The CEO was gone. Um, They pretty much stripped... The, the history out of the company, because they really didn't know what to do with these outdoor brands,
0: and that's sad. So, yeah. Um, and it's something that we're seeing a lot of, especially, well, more and more um, nowadays. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting. I, I it's been interesting to track the history too, because you know, if you look at it just now, it it seems like oh, well the industry is consolidating, you know, more than ever now, but it's been consolidating for a long time. It seems right. like, I mean, back to the nineties, um, you know, I, I don't know when the first acquisition took place. Um, it, it was 90 for 90. us, 90. Yep. So, uh, this, this is something that's been happening for a long time. Last 30 years, there's, right. there's been consolidation in the industry, which, which, you know, for good or for bad, that's up for people to discuss. Yeah. Um, Some
2: some of it went both ways, because Mm -hmm. at one point, like I was saying, early 90s, um, Odyssey, which was Hong Kong-based, owned North Face, Marmot, Sierra Designs, had Mm -hmm. eventually, they (laughs) were going bankrupt, too. Uh, And so all those companies split back off again. So it's kind of like um, (laughs) the universe, Big Bang, everything gets consolidated and (laughs)
0: blows up again. Right,
2: right. And then Bill Simon goes on to
0: buy Converse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a name that keeps coming up in the conversations that I've. Oh been yeah, having. so Simon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's definitely yeah. a common thread and and probably a big driver of a lot of the of of course of the consolidation that happened in the in the nineties, right? Yeah. So that that's someone that keeps coming up on my radar. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, there's a lot of discussion around that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, I'm familiar <laughs> with some of that, so. <laughs> Um, well, with with that said, you know, as as you head into this new phase at Newell, when did that acquisition happen? 16, 2016. Yeah. Okay. So 16. same year, same there year that, that you both then retire. Is Correct. that right?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, they, they allowed us to call it retirement. Okay. We were basically reorganized out. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but don't print that.
0: <laughs> well, we can cut this part out um it doesn't I, I, matter <laughs> that's true it's too late now <laughs> I I guess I'm I'm curious as you reflect on on your time in the industry um and with Marmot I mean what do you reflect on what are your thoughts and and feelings now being a little more removed um I guess what what do you reflect on what what are you most proud of um what do you wish you would have done differently if anything um I just any thoughts there on, on your time Mm. at Marmot and in the industry?
1: Uh, Personally, for me, what I'm most proud of is the teaching I was able to do. And also all the people that went through taught me something, you know, I, I, it was uh, amazing to see young people come into our technical design area And, uh, I, I would feel sorry for them in some ways because, you know, their passions and I I can do this. And what if we try this? And, and it was, you know, you, you would have to, uh, tell them in a way that didn't crush their soul. We've done that many times. It doesn't work. (laughs) Or, you know, somebody comes and sits in your office and says, well, what's my next path? Uh, Can I get to be a Uh, you know, a level one designer next year. And I'm like, well, uh, probably not here. Um, Probably going to take you about five years. And it's, it's, it's hard, you know, to have those real conversations with people. Um, But in the end, the last decade of my career was all about teaching. And my boss at the time, Mark Martin, he actually told me that straight. He says I want you to be a mentor. And one of the things that I think I personally as a woman am most proud of is when I left the company there were as many women in management upper positions that there were men and Mark made that happen and that started with Eric. Eric was a very free soul. He allowed The company to grow at its own pace at a time where when you were in a uh, small town like we were, every supervisor that came into any factory, and there were quite a few factories in Colorado at the time in our hometown, um, they were all men. And it was the people on the sewing floors, the electronics floors, etc. Those people trained their supervisor To oversee them so that's the most interesting thing to me is marmot was very different i mean we used to be in conversations with suppliers or factories that would come visit us and they would always comment on the amount of women that were sitting at the table because there were a lot of women in managerial positions or vp's positions etc and you didn't see that in the outdoor industry even now It's mostly male. And, um, you know, through the outdoor retailer show, I was involved in some uh, groups that were groups of mentoring women. And uh, and that's still prevalent in the industry. And and that's too bad because it doesn't need to be that way.
2: My turn. Yeah. (laughs) I'd have to say for me, it's, it's really simple. I'm just uh, proud that I was able to be part of the company and the passion and the people um, that were able to make the great products that we did.
1: And that's the biggest thing is, is the people that come in and the passions they had, it's like, we would have some very fiery conversations internally and it really wasn't personal. I think it's just that we all had a very, very, Strong passion for making sure that you know things were going to be the best. Well,
0: that's great. Well, any parting thoughts? I guess as we kind of wrap up the conversation, or anything that we missed.
1: Um, you know, I, I just i i don't know how today young people find their way in this industry to learn the way we did. I mean, from the very, very bottom up, there isn't a lot of that. And people at our age are the people that train those people. And we're retired. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it, would, it would fascinate me to really understand how, that, how they learn now. And how they learn by distance, you know, to a factory because I know a lot of brands don't have the luxury to go to the factory to sit on a sewing floor for three weeks to get that relationship, um, and that's critical.
0: Yeah, well, this is this is a great opportunity to, for you to to continue to teach and pass on um, a few things that maybe our students aren't aren't getting right? Um, So you can continue to be a mentor in that way. And in this form, um, which we really appreciate. Um, Well, with, with that said, I'm sure there's so much more that we could talk about and maybe there's a part two in here somewhere. Um, But I just appreciate you both being willing to take some time and share your stories and insights and, and as well as materials that are now at, at the university archives that people can, can look at and appreciate. So thank you both for, all that you do and, and for, uh, you know, having the conversation today.
2: Actually, thank you for putting this together so that, um, some of the the newer people coming up have a sense of the history. I think that's great.
1: Yes, definitely. Thank you.
0: Well, we want them to, um, know what they're getting into, right. (laughs) And, uh, so we think that's important that they understand the the history and the heritage and, and, um, understand that the companies that they're working for and are, we're not always just parts of big, you know, massive parent companies. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And hopefully they can inject that soul back into some of these companies that maybe have lost their way a little bit. Um, And so, because they have learned to appreciate where they've come from. So that's our hope at least. So thank you for contributing.
2: I was was just going to say, that's got to be the toughest thing these days is to try and come up with something that's innovative. Um, and, and that's going to be probably their biggest challenge is to be unique
0: and special and innovate. It's what we push them to do every day. And, and, uh, it is a challenge for sure, but well, thank you both. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the outdoor product design and development YouTube channel or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.